0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On. Over the last 200 years, nothing has divided us more than our free market economic system. Is it the source of every social injustice, from exploitation to alienation to inequality? Or is it essential to our individual freedom and democracy, this debate is as relevant today in 2020 as it was in 1920 or 1820. So what's up with our contemporary free market economic system? How do we fix capitalism? So in 2020, particularly in the democratic primary, we have this great debate about capitalism. Some people say capitalism works, some people say it doesn't lots of the candidates are suggesting that we need to, l- to go beyond capitalism. In the midst of that debate, one of the world's leading economists, Branko Milanovic, who's a distinguished academic, ex-World Bank chief economist, has a new book out called Capitalism Alone, which suggests that there's nothing beyond capitalist, that, that the entire world works off the same system, whether it's Denmark or the United States or Chile or China or Singapore were all capitalists. And the name of his book, of course, is Capitalism Alone. Branco, is capitalism our only option?
1: I think it is our only option because we cannot currently conceive of any other system. And we do not have within the system as we know it now, forces that are sufficiently strong to actually promote advocate in their daily behavior an alternative system. Now, that does not mean that you don't have isolated communities that do not follow capitalist principles. You do have them, but they are really marginal and they don't really influence the greater sort of development of mankind. And, you know, it's not a pure statement. We can actually do it empirically. We can actually cal- calculate the number of, of people who are actually outside of the capitalist system. Obviously, some of them are outside because they are relatively poor and they have not been integrated into the system. And some of them are outside because they voluntarily decide to take them uh, themselves out. But if you were to probably add all of this, you would, prob- you would not get more than 3, 4, 5% of the world population.
0: There are contemporary politicians, I mentioned Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn in England, who embrace the term socialist. Is socialism and capitalism, are they compatible or do we have to choose between them?
1: You know, I'm old fashioned in that sense. And of course, I grew up in a socialist country. And when I use the term socialism, I really mean uh, non-private ownership of the means of production. Now, when I, when you look currently at the situation, political sort of uh, landscape, uh, neither uh, Bernie Sanders nor Corbyn really advocate that. Corbyn has some elements. We're talking about nationalization. So there are some elements of that. But certainly in Sanders, there are none. And uh, uh, Sanders advocates social democracy. Again, we mentioned Denmark before, but it's basically, of course, patterned after the Nordic social democracy. But the term socialism, in my opinion, should not be used for something which is a de facto. I mean, it is a capitalist system with number of correctives.
0: Why does capitalism make us so moral, given that it's an amoral system?
1: I don't think it makes us moral, actually. I think that. Doesn't moral, it
0: bring out our sense of injustice, of unfairness, particularly on the part of the left? I'm not sure that actually it was brought
1: by capitalism. Maybe if people feel uh, injustice, it is brought by other reasons, whether it is religious, whether ideological, ethical, because other uh, sort of uh, uh, systems of thought influence us to view certain features of capitalism as immoral even, or at least amoral. But capitalism itself, I think, in order to function, and of course that's the argument that I make in the last part of the book, really requires people who follow their own interest and companies that follow their own interest, and they have limits, which are really legal limits. So these are not moral limits, but purely uh, limits by law.
0: Do you see yourself, particularly in this book, capitalism alone, as a critic of capitalism
1: you know it's very difficult because sometimes actually it seems that I'm a greater proponent of capitalism. Uh, my son was absolutely was uh, unhappy with that particular uh, sort of uh, um, critique or that particular reading of the book because like many you know young Americans he's much more on the left side. Uh, but I do methodologically use Marxism to discuss capitalism. Actually, if you look at the methodological underpinnings of the book, I think they are pretty Marxist. And so that makes this is maybe more difficult to classify, because I do actually believe in class analysis. I believe that actually essential sort of ways of motion of capitalism that were discussed by Marx are extremely relevant. I think probably now more relevant than before, because today's capitalism looks more like capitalism of the 19th century that Marx knew. But on the other hand, and it's not very totally unusual for Marxists, I see capitalism as inevitable, and currently I don't see any
0: alternatives. Do you think that being schooled in Marxism, you were schooled uh, uh, as a young man in Belgrade growing up in the old Yugoslavia. Uh, Slovoj Žižek, perhaps the world's leading critic, for better or worse, of capitalism, grew up in Ljubljana in Slovenia. Do you think to be a real critic of capitalism requires a background in Marx and Marxism?
1: Uh, yes, I do believe, actually. I think, obviously, that's not the only way that you can criticize uh, uh, capitalism. Or actually, let me put it crazy that you honestly can conceive of the way that capitalism works. And I do believe that there is a huge uh, uh, missing part in the education of many economists today of not having read Marx. It essentially what Marx gives you is really what nobody else does except Adam Smith, I believe, is that actually gives you an all compensing view of a society and actually discusses economics as a force that is actually changing society. It doesn't discuss economics only whether the demand for water increases or declines if you increase the price. It actually is much sort of broader and deeper. Now, I have to say that, of course, I was influenced very much as as a young uh, man, you know, by Marx, but uh, it was not only because, of course, I studied in in Yugoslavia. I was actually, I did high school in Belgium in the 1960s. And many people may not realize, because, you know, this is an uh, old-fashioned story, Uh, how influential was Marxism even in high schools in continental Europe in the 1960s. Basically, that was the the lens through which we saw the developments then. That was, of course, 1968, you know, I mean, 1970s, that was the very leftist.
0: You present Marx as an economist, but wasn't he essentially a political philosopher? Wasn't he a moralist? Didn't he use his analysis of capitalism to speak of injustice and revolution?
1: He did, of course, and that's the element that, of course, then was sort of, uh, how should I say, continued. Through you know Marxist revolutions, but for me, and maybe because I'm an economist and I still read Marx from you know different fun, parts,
0: not for fun, actually,
1: honestly, for fun. You know, sometimes in the evening when you can't uh, sleep, when I cannot sleep, for example, I take Grundrisse. Grundrisse is phenomenal because it is a German ideology, well, the German ideology, also. You know, it's actually pieces of his writings that you can read because they're actually put all together, and of course, they're somewhat systematized, but not really. So, you you can read really whatever you you know you want, and uh, I, but I take him still as f- for the econom- as an economist. I have to say that uh, uh, more moralistic things, and there are things which, of course, his you know uh, education was uh, as a philosopher. So there are parts. Um, that I, that I don't know, and I actually cannot uh, sort of discuss, which are more philosophical parts. After all, his dissertation was a philosophical dissertation. Uh, so I, I still see him as, a, as an economist.
0: Your book, Capitalism Alone, has been very influential. Do, do you see it as, as fitting into this kind of broad critique of capitalism, which seems to have been triggered by Piketty's work at the beginning of the 21st century?
1: I think it does, I think it's actually maybe a reconsideration of capitalism or a study of capitalism or maybe the critique of capitalism. And I think Piketty was very influential there. He was very influential by uh, bringing uh, um, a very high level of economic analysis, uh, combining it with the sort of a political views, which actually in the new book, which is Capital and Ideology, are even more strongly combined. Uh, And I think the great contribution, I have to say, uh, that Piketty has made, he has essentially try to bring us back to the role that economists had in the past, which was really large analysis and critique. When critique, I'm talking a Marxist term critique. So it's not that you're necessarily against, but you're actually analyzing something. And I think that was a great contribution.
0: Everyone at least bought Piketty's book. I don't think many people read it, but it was one of those books that we all bought Capital in the 21st century. Why should people read your book? Why should they buy capitalism alone? What are you saying that nobody else has said?
1: Well, I think first they should buy it because it's a relatively short book. (laughs) And it's it's a fun
0: read. I mean, fun, as uh, as much fun as any economic book could be.
1: And the second reason, I think, is that as a friend of mine who actually interviewed me said, and I think he was right, so let me just. uh, I don't try to be objective. He said there is a very high density of information per page. And I think Mm. there is, I could have actually written three times longer book if I wanted to discuss and sort of go through all the details. I didn't because partly I think people really don't want to read all of that. Secondly, maybe I was a little bit too impatient to put it out. Now, why people should read it? I think actually... Uh, There are several parts which are worthwhile reading. For example, my uh, reinterpretation of the role of communism in global history is really new, actually, and I think it actually lets you uh, see why China is now capitalist, because basically you see the role of the Communist Party somewhat ironically as being of reintroducing domestic capitalism in China. Uh, and I think there is a logic to that. So I think that part is, I think, quite interesting for many people. And of course, there is maybe another part which was uh, the creation or the danger of a creation of a self-sustaining political and economic elite in countries of liberal capitalism. And that's
0: what I really yeah. found provocative in the book. Um, I know your definition of capitalism is is premised on the absence of a caste system. Uh, but. What you seem to be saying in capitalism alone is that Western capitalism, at least, is in danger of becoming a caste system where the most successful capitalists intermarry. And that is the foundations for the yawning inequality in today's contemporary capitalist systems. Is, is contemporary capitalism Is it getting Is it becoming a a kind of aristocracy? Is it becoming a medieval world? I think this is one of the dangers, you
1: know, and again, uh, the U.S. example, I think, is the best for that. But that's an example that can be replicated elsewhere. Uh, I think that we have uh, currently a most uh, sophisticated upper class that had ever existed. These are people who are very well educated, who are smart, who work hard, who have high labor incomes and who have also high capital incomes, whether they have inherited that and kept it or whether they've been able through high salaries to save and to invest. There are people also who have never, nobody I think as a class has invested so much effort and money in upbringing of their children. And then they have an education system that is extremely expensive and de de facto they monopolize the system through ability to pay for it. So they are producing people who are also highly educated, sophisticated with all the advantages of money and knowledge which they get. And I think that the ultimate result of that could be the creation of, you called it a caste, but could be creation of a class that is actually self-sustaining. And its objective is really self-sustaining position because their objective is to make their children as successful, powerful, rich as they are themselves. And I think the danger there is twofold. One, it dispenses or ends with equality of opportunity which is one really of the foundational principles of capitalism and all this shuffling of positions and and dynamic of capitalist society and the founding dream of this country of the United States. The second danger is that particular system may not be compatible with the type of democracy that we sort of take as desirable of one person, one vote. And in that sense, it's interesting that we are now we've been speaking while the US primaries are taking place, where you actually do have an, an, a, a present and very clear danger of people buying the political
0: power. One of the most intriguing suggestions, I think, in the book, although maybe you would suggest that it isn't a suggestion, is that Veblen's notion of a leisured class, which of course was written as a critique of the original capitalist elite, would actually be healthy in today's world. That The Bezos and the Zuckerbergs of the world, they should be enjoying their billions. They should be sitting at home and wearing fancy clothes. The problem is all these people continue to work
1: uh yeah, well I think in that sense Veblen's book is really of course fun to read he is an extremely uh sharp uh, uh, critic of the society but I don't think that his book would apply to today's world now we don't we do have access in wealth, we have crazy weddings, we have people, you know, flying uh, helicopters. I recently watched uh, uh, Succession, the the, the Netflix series, which I think is very good. I was actually advised by a very smart friend of mine to watch it. And it's actually you see some of that excess. However, Uh, the upper class is a hard-working upper class. People actually like to work. They want to work. They want to have power. They don't go only to the Bahamas and spend all their money there. Some of them do, but I think the prevalent mood and even a prevalent ethos is the ethos of work and power.
0: Why? Does that show that Weber was right in in his sort of existential analysis of what drove the original capitalists? Why don't the Bezoses of the world simply enjoy their wealth. Why can't they indulge? Why can't they slow down?
1: I don't know, you know, it could be that we have linked uh, uh, economic, ec- economic uh, wealth with power and maybe people, it's very difficult, I think, for people to actually give up that. You know, okay, you can say Zuckerberg can actually go and just enjoy his wealth and he would have power over the waiters over, you know, people who bring his uh, golf cart, <laughs> over, uh, you know, uh, people who work for him on the island. But that would be a power which is much l- smaller, much less, much more circumvented uh, circum- uh, <coughs> than the power that he has now. And I think it is, uh, <coughs> it is the, the dream of that power that impels us or influence that we want to have on the world, which actually leads us to, to become workaholics.
0: You mentioned that this class, this new capitalist aristocracy—those are my words, not yours—have uh, a particular obsession, a fetish with their children. Do you think one of the reasons why they fetishize work is because uh, it, 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 they don't want to have kids who are scions of aristocrats? They want their kids, or they at least claim that their kids should work hard. I mean the one thing in social situations in America that you never will ever hear from anyone however privileged is that they grew up in privilege. It's the most politically incorrect thing anyone could ever say that I was born into privilege. Is that yeah, it's true. Is there may be a kind of a marxist subconscious thing going on here, but do you think that's why they're so obsessed with work, to enable a world where their children can continue that tradition of wealth and power?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think it also comes with the sophistication of the upper class and with uh, the uh, sort of more, how should I say, longer term um, thinking or having been rich for a longer term. Now, what, what they want to say is the following. That particular statement, that I was not born in wealth, although they were, many of them, would be very easily imaginable and I think is easily made in countries like China and Russia, where it's actually even seen as a sign of success that you have actually to project wealth and to let other people know that you were born in wealth and that you are wealthy and then you can do whatever you want. Uh, I think that that actually shows the sophistication of the Western upper class that actually they in the conversation and I think in their own even thinking they downplay the importance of what they have achieved and the amount of wealth that they have you know I've seen and you have must have heard people who would actually deny to you that they are part of the top 1% where they are obviously part of that that top 1% and I'm not saying that they would only deny it because they just wish to to appear to you to be like more normal quote unquote they actually really literally believe because they always would see somebody who is like ten times as rich or five times as rich as them themselves and not think that actually these people are, you know, maybe one hundredths of one percent. So you know, there is a sort of a, it's a political correctness is of course not to say that you are wealthy.
0: So, given the, your, your immersion in, in Marxist theory and Marxist tradition, do you think perhaps Rather than going back to Marxist economists, we should return to Marxist sociologists and cultural critics, whether it's the Frankfurt School uh, or uh, or um, or, uh, Lukács or Gramsci, people who saw capitalism, not in economic, but in political and cultural terms.
1: Could be, but you know, for that question, I'm really not uh, not uh, the right person to 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 answer that question because my grounding, as I said before, was really in Marx as an economist, much more than a Marx as a sociologist. And uh, uh, people like Lukács, Gramsci, I've read, you know, parts of, of Gramsci, but they were more, uh, how should I say, critical social critics. And I'm using, of course, critics as a somebody who is criticizing society. And I always thought that the power of Marx, and that's why we are still with Marx, like with Adam Smith, is that he is playing on several, like playing several chess games at the same time. He's playing on the board, which is economics board, he has social board. Uh, quasi-religious because it was really transcending capitalism. So, as I said, I actually really followed him mostly on that economic chessboard uh, much more
0: than on the others. So, let's end on economics. Uh, You've you've written this, I wouldn't call it a contradictory book, but a book with two very different messages. The first is that capitalism is, uh, the current capitalist system is immoral troubling ten, with a tendency towards aristocracy. And on the other hand, that okay. capitalism, and I, and I want to use this, I will use this word carefully, seems to be almost inevitable. It's the dominant system. What needs to change? If capitalism is indeed alone, as you say, what is the best economic way to reform it so that it no longer is a caste system, so that it no longer is explicitly unjust?
1: Before I answer that question, let me sort of um, address the issue of a p- sort of potential contradiction that, that, you, that you raised. I, uh, I thought of that, and I think actually that we can say that uh, to some extent it is the reflection of human condition. In other words, that uh, maybe the prosperity and wealth and ease of life, and what uh, Smith called called the betterment of our condition, uh, does require a system that is amoral in the sense that puts the primacy on acquisition of wealth, on profit, on gain. And this is this fundamental dilemma that uh, Mandeville had and that was addressed in Smith, that we cannot be at the same time prosperous and rich and be virtuous. And I think this is, I think maybe the human condition and I'm aware of potential contradiction of that, but I'm very unsympathetic towards views that see uh, acquisition of wealth being to some extent moral, virtuous, leading to virtuous society. So having said that, Uh, uh, I will try to answer the second part of the question. What can we do to make things better? And I think I would not focus so much on making us sort of um, altruistic or virtuous because I think by the virtue of the system, we cannot be that. Nor the system can exist with us becoming like that. We need to to remain these economic machines. Now, what can we do? We can address the question of this uh, capitalist aristocracy. And I think that we can address by having much broader ownership of capital, which is now extremely concentrated in the the case of the US, 10% of the richest capitalists own 92% of all financial assets. The situation is no different in other countries, even Denmark, very high concentration. On the other hand, for labor, we have, this is addressing capital, now for labor, we are think necess- have to break that link which now strongly exists between prestigious schools, their extremely high costs, difficulty of access to the sort of modest or normal or median household, which then of course leads to the reproduction of the elite. How we will do that I think is through public education, accessible to everybody and public education that actually is perceived as better than, than private. I'm not saying it's easy to achieve, but I think that we can imagine a society where, for example, US had of course, extremely good system of public education. Still it's a good one but it's not as prevalent as it was in the past. But we can imagine the situation where a private school becomes viewed as sometimes some schools are still now regarded as schools where the rich people send their kids because they couldn't get anywhere else. So I think that society in that would be a preferred society where actually the link be- between uh, power now and power in the future or this creation of the capitalist elite, that link would be actually broken. But breaking the link between, breaking the the idea of incompatibility of economic progress with moral values. I think it's an entirely different issue and maybe the, we can never break this out of that.
0: A couple of economists wrote a book in terms of analyzing inequality, suggesting that given our levels of inequality, the these societies only change through either civil war or external war or some catastrophe. Do you buy that? I mean, I like your vision of free education in the United States, but it doesn't seem particularly imminent. Do no. you think to fix capitalism requires catastrophe?
1: This is uh, Walter Scheidel's, of course, uh, book, You know, The Great Leveler. I think that uh, Walter, who is a friend actually, I think that he takes uh, maybe too pessimistic view and uh, defines the change in inequality to be of such tremendous dimensions that either you need to have epidemics or you have civil strife or you have revolution or you have wars. I believe that we have historically had changes, reductions of inequality, particularly in Western societies, without revolution. Now, we have had these changes, as some people argue, I think reasonably, because of the threat of the revolution. So we had as we all know, after World War II, in Western countries, you had an important link between socialist parties and the trade unions. You had the example of the Soviet Union, which actually was in the 1950s an important element. It was not an element in 1980s, but in the 50s it was. So it is true that that capitalism reformed itself under political pressure from within yeah, and but without. Yeah, you had the
0: Second World War.
1: And the Second World I mean, War, that yeah. would, None of that would yeah. have happened
0: without the Second World War.
1: Actually, people, or even without the World, without the First World we, War. And yeah. without yeah.
0: the Great Depression.
1: So, you know, I, I think that nevertheless, I think that if you look at the period from 1945 to 1980, you had significant declines of inequality without any of these sort of uh, events of, Fundamentally destructive nature that that Walter Scheidel writes about. So I, I don't, I'm not as, you know, I'm not generally an optimistic guy, but I'm well, you're really from not. Right? Yes, yeah, so it's very difficult to be optimistic, <laughs> yeah. You know? But I'm not so pessimistic that it's only under the conditions of destruction that we really can achieve a reduction
0: of inequality. Finally, you've got two minutes left in this conversation. What can we do, listeners? To start fixing capital, and what's doable, rather than nationalizing the education system.
1: No, what is actual? Uh, no, but still, we have to think of this as a as a long-term proposition, where the uh, the public system becomes better and better, and actually was seen as a really serious contender replacement. Now, what we can do as individuals, I think. The only thing that we can do is political participation. Without political participation, without voting, without going out, and without making our opinions known on social media or in political space, nothing will get changed.
0: So we're back to politics. The Economist tells us to be political.
1: True. We are back to politics.
0: You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening. Keen On isn't just a podcast. It's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterdays, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy tomorrow's versus yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.